having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Amen. This is God's word. Be seated. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. So that that beginning verse there, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Um, This text that we're in this morning is about love. Love of the brethren. And uh, love is a difficult thing. It's, it's hard to come by, particularly sincere love that we're, we see here in this text. We hear a lot about love. You know, we need to love each other. What is that? Is it warm fuzzies? Um, you know, and so this idea of sincere love that's from a genuine heart expressed in community, in, even in, in the church, is a difficult thing and it's hard to come by. So, I kind of want to begin here by kind of filling out or unpacking Peter's primary exhortation of this these verses, which is found in verse 22. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So, I just want to start by giving a little bit of definition to that. So, what is love? That's a difficult question to answer. I've never been able to define it in a sentence. I've never heard anybody do it well. Maybe there is a good one. Um, But certainly it's not a question we can answer in a sermon or maybe a lifetime. But I think we can start to define it a little bit. Uh, One commentator says that uh, Peter here, the love Peter has in view is neither a warm, fuzzy feeling nor friendship around a coffee pot after worship, though love, as Peter defines it, may involve both. Rather, it refers to the righteous relationships with each other that are based on God's character. So in other words, brotherly love reflects God's character into the covenant community, kind of like the the moon reflects the sun back onto earth. So, as I said, a comprehensive definition of love is kind of a tall order, but as a working definition for this sermon and for this text, this context, I think I'll give it a shot to say Christian brotherly love is God's character 
reflected by God's people to God's people. God's character reflected by God's people unto God's people. So, for example, love is patient. Love is kind. Patience and kindness are elements of God's character. And as we exhibit those to one another, we exhibit, we reflect God's character to one another. Another example we see in in Romans 13, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we, we know that the law of God is is God's character exhibited to us. So as we fulfill the law, we are loving one another. So again, God's lo- love, in, in this sermon anyway, is God's character reflected by God's people to God's people. He also says that we are to love earnestly or, or fervently. In, uh, in Acts 12, when Peter is in prison, the, the Christians are said to have prayed earnestly for him. It's the same word. Uh, also in Luke 22, when Jesus is, is praying and he sweats drops of blood, he's also said to have been praying earnestly. That same word is used here. So this, this word implies effort. It implies passion and sincerity and persistence. Uh, one lexicon defines the, the word by saying it, it's fundamentally to do it in, a, in an extended way, like you're reaching out for something. I kind of I kind of imagine for some reason like when you're sitting on the couch and you want to reach the remote, and you're too lazy to get up, but you expend like twice as much energy trying <laughs> to reach for it. <laughs> for some reason that picture was in my head, but it's it's an effort, an extending yourself, stretching out to grab something. This is the word that he uses, earnestly love one another. So love is work then. It's an investment. It's a, an expenditure of emotional capital. The fervency or earnesty, uh, earnestness of love is a tough concept for me. It's difficult for me to, to think about and to do because people are stinkers. <laughs> and I am a stinker. Earnest love is hard, and it's painful work, and it's a, a long work. It's a lifetime of work. But it's our calling. And what higher calling is there than to be reflections of God in the world? Peter also says that we're to love from a pure heart. So an impure heart can't love properly. I think you can reflect God's character if you have an impure heart. I think unbelievers do that when they give aid to suffering people or when they, they love their families. They are reflecting God's character in some sense. But impurity of heart kind of dims or blocks the reflection of God's character primarily because we're trying to absorb the light for ourselves. Self-seeking expressions of love 
will display God's character, but we try to kind of grab the glory for ourselves. We want people to think that 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 light, that loving light emanates from within ourselves rather than being a reflection of God. So even as Christians, we kind of we want some candle flame, some give me one lumen of credit (laughs) from this love of this glory. But a pure heart operates on pure motives with genuineness of love for the other person that always seeks to direct the glory back to God. This is a high calling to to love earnestly and from from a pure heart. So how do we accomplish this? And of course, Peter does not give us a five-step plan or, or a video with tips and tricks on how to love. What he does is what he always does, what he's been doing the whole book. He has a command and then he grounds the command in the theology of the command, of the action he's trying to motivate. He points us back to these fundamental truths which which undergird brotherly love. So I see kind of three foundations in this text for brotherly love. I, I kind of have this picture of like a pyramid, you know, the step pyramids, the ziggurats, and each foundation is kind of progressively smaller. And so at the top is is this command to love, this pinnacle, and then it's undergirded by a series of greater, more broad foundations. So the first foundation is that love stands on uh, consecration. Love stands on consecration. So uh, verse 22, the beginning of verse 22, having purified your souls, by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What the ESV translates as purity, um, it contains the idea of purity, but it's more the idea of, of consecration. D.A. <coughs> Carson, he says that this verb consistently appears in the Septuagint, the, the Greek Old Testament, and in the Gospels and Acts to refer to a ceremonial ritual in which one willingly and intentionally devotes oneself to God. So we see in Joshua 3, he says that, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Another example from John says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify or to consecrate themselves. It's the same word. So, this idea of consecration has this idea of being setting yourself apart, kind of purifying, cleansing yourself, putting yourself, setting yourself apart. And so what are we consecrated to? And he says we are consecrated to a sincere, or the word really is unhypocritical, love of the brethren. This connects, this idea of unhypocritical love connects directly with that idea of, of loving from a pure heart. You know, the, the, whole, the word hypocrite comes from the play actor who wears the mask, who's hiding behind the mask. But a pure heart is not masked, it's not two-faced, it's a genuine love. 
Now, here he tells us how we're consecrated, how we consecrate ourselves. He says it's by our obedience to the truth. Now, this idea, by our obedience to the truth, it could give us the idea that, that we are working, we're doing it, we're earning our consecration. Nearly every commentator on this point says essentially what D.A. Carson says here. He says it's submitting oneself to the gospel and coming to faith in Jesus. Submitting oneself to the gospel and coming to faith in Jesus. So there's that moment when you submit yourself to the gospel. Uh, Paul uses the word, the phrase, the obedience of faith in Romans. Um, Also the word here, consecrated in Greek, there's what's called the perfect tense, which is a tense where something happens in a moment and then it has effects into the present. And that's the, the tense here. So at a moment, we submitted ourselves to the truth and now the effects are rolling out after that event. So what Peter seems to be saying is, you've come under submission to the truth and so you have set yourself apart unto God and unto his people, unto his covenant community. You've consecrated yourselves to that. And now the logical or even necessary outflow of that is that you love the brethren. In fact, the way it's stated here, Peter sees brotherly love as a primary purpose for which we have consecrated our souls by obedience to the truth. We have done so for, he says, or unto love of the brethren, a sincere love of the brethren. I think Americans struggle with this, that that we've done this unto a love of the brethren, unto a community. We, We as Americans, we have our, probably not just Americans, but we have individual faith. Our, our faith is, is my faith. And then when we come to church, we're coming as individuals gathering with other people who are like-minded, and, and maybe they keep us accountable, maybe they help us grow. But there's no idea of a fundamental unity of identity there. Peter says, when we come to the subjection of our, our subjection to the truth, we enter into the covenant family of the consecrated ones, the, the ones who are set apart. I think this is, is crucial for us to understand. Horton, I couldn't find the quote where he said this, but he said essentially we flip it upside down on its head. We think that we are, we are individuals coming in when the reality is we are a, a com- covenant community going out. An illustration I came up with is maybe a little bit <coughs> corny, but hopefully it will get the point across. Uh, if you have a beehive, beehives are, are centrally located, and they're about the work of the hive, and they're going out. Whereas if you have a, a, a group of bears coming together for salmon fishing, they're generally isolated, but then they come together around a common value system to, to catch fish. So the church is more like the beehive, radiating out from a central hub, if you will. So Peter tells us that when we obey the truth by faith in Christ, we do it unto an unhypocritical love of the brethren. And this is, of course, a reality for everyone who is a true believer. It's happened in a moment for all of us. 
When we were redeemed to Christ, then we were also redeemed to his people as well. So love stands on consecration then as the first kind of foundation for the commandment to love. So that's the one directly under on the pyramid if you're using that image. Uh, Secondly, we'll go one level, level broader and deeper. Second foundation is that love stands on the new birth. He says in verse 23, Since you have been born again, or because you have been born again. This theme of the new birth is critical for, for Peter. We see it in verse 3. He's, he's kind of always functioning off this idea of, of new birth. I think it's important because we see in verse 22, you know, you have purified your souls, you have consecrated your souls by your obedience. Well, let's be careful and make sure we're not thinking that this is all our own work. There's a undergirding reality behind that that is the new birth. Without a new birth, we cannot properly love the brethren. In fact, before the new birth, our brethren were the children of the devil, as Jesus tells the Pharisees in John. So if we recall our, our kind of working definition of brotherly love, which is God's character reflected by God's people to God's people, a spiritually dead man can't really do any of those things. He can't live in accord with God's character. He can't love as a full-orbed expression of righteousness. And he's not in covenant with God's people, so he can't do those things. So Christian love in its fullest sense is impossible outside the regenerating work of God. I was asking myself this week, how does this doctrine of regeneration connect to love? Or maybe better, Peter is, is, is using this idea as a foundation to stimulate action, to stimulate love. So how does our knowledge of the new birth stimulate earnest brotherly love? I think it's that it makes us aware of a radical identity change in ourselves. First uh, John 4 illustrates this point, 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the the old man, the man of the flesh, treated people one way, and now God has changed us. We are different creatures. We are new people in God. And now we, we change the way that we treat people. So the new birth is, is the second foundation for brotherly love uh, because we're made new creatures in Christ. Peter goes on to identify the source of our new birth here. So there's even a more foundational element than, than the new birth. So number three, the love is, is based upon 
the eternal Word of God. So even more foundational to love is the Word of God because our new birth stems from the Word of God. One of my favorite Michael Horton quotes, I think I've, I know I've used it here before, but it's that God's words are event-generating discourse. In other words, God's words are working words. When he spoke, the universe was made. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Likewise, when he spoke, we came to spiritual life. I hear it's compared to the reproductive process. So he says that the seed of God's word brought us to newness of life, and that seed of God's word is contrasted against that perishable seed of the flesh. So we've all been born of the flesh. I was born of Ron Cruz. But not all are born, again, not all are born of the Spirit. Peter says, you know, look here to verse or Isaiah 40. He says that all flesh is like grass. And, it, and all the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains. So one seed then generates temporary life while the other generates eternal life. And not only that, but one seed generates temporary family while the other generates an eternal family. I think Jesus is powerful in Matthew 12 when his mother and brothers come looking for him. And he stretches out his hand and he says, Here are my brother and brothers. People sitting around listening to him. And he says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and brother and sister. So there's a very real sense in which the Christian in the covenant family that identity is more foundational than the fleshly family. An awareness of that fundamental identity as members of the covenant family, born together of an eternal word into a family that will never cease, that identity is is such a strong foundation for brotherly love. We may kind of deal with bickering and, and infighting now in the church, but one day, we'll all worship before the throne together. I was thinking about that, about Christians who irritate me. They have bad theology. They don't live like that. And they're picking at me. So I'm going to worship with this person. I'm going to probably stand by him for a thousand years. We share the same spiritual DNA. All Christians. So these realities stand as an immovable foundation for the expressions of God's character reflected by God's people to God's people. So love love doesn't stand kind of on its own as its own entity. If we are to express earnest love, it's not a matter of kind of mere elbow grease or, you know, in the church growing programs or cultivation of warm fuzzies. Sometimes we struggle to love our brothers and sisters because we're tough to love. Or sometimes it's difficult just because we're all very different. We have different ages, different interests, different personalities, different tastes. But we need to remember that we are family because we're redeemed brothers and sisters. And we're not a, a club of people who share like interests. 
Uh, Horton has another great, great quote on this. He says, The church is not a group of friends you've picked. It's a group of brothers and sisters God has picked for you. The love based on DNA, love based on family, runs a whole lot deeper than love based on shared interests. Love is a challenge, but it's not a command left to the willpower of, of the individual Christian. Love is undergirded by this solid foundation. God spoke. He said, let there be life, and there was life. Flowing from this newness of life came this moment of obedience to the truth by which we have consecrated ourselves unto an unhypocritical love of the brethren. That's a solid foundation. So I just want to conclude. I was trying to think about how to conclude. In 1 Corinthians 13, I'm just going to read it. Uh, It kind of sums it all up. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. <laughs> Love never ends, for at prophecies they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Amen.